0: Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Tonight, we're in our fourth lesson in our study of the book of Revelation. I want you to remember that the word Revelation is the same word from, we get apocalypse. If you ask somebody, what does apocalypse mean? Most people will say, well, the apocalypse, that, that means the end of the world when the world ends in a big explosion and everything on the planet dies and life as we know it ceases to exist. There might be some truth to that meaning, but Revelation really simply means to unveil. It means to take the lid off. That's what the word originally meant. And what we're doing here as we study the book of Revelation, we're just taking the lid off things that happened in the end times. If someone were to ask you, what does Jesus look like? I think most of us, the very first thing that would come to our minds, we'd get a picture of of a long, brown-haired man, long-haired brown man. I'm getting straight here. A long, brown-haired man is what I'm trying to say, with soft blue eyes, a very stately look, a very nice, neat, trim beard. And we get, that's the picture of what Jesus looks like. But as we study the book of Revelation, we get uh, of the best description of Jesus, the right description of Jesus. Uh, Brother Gary and I were blessed to be in Israel uh, earlier this year, and we were surrounded by a lot of Jews, believe me in Israel and I never saw one that looked like the pictures that you see of Jesus. I think one of the reasons why uh, that we shouldn 't have pictures of Jesus today is because that puts that image into our mind, and I think that you can look into the Old Testament and read the Ten Commandments and find out we shouldn 't have those kinds of things, certainly we shouldn 't worship those kinds of things. Jesus was a very common man. There wasn't any beauty that draw, uh, draw, would draw people to Him. And in fact, I, I think the Bible teaches that God did not want us to be drawn to Jesus by any physical beauty that He might have. But rather, we're drawn to Him through the operation and the work of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. So it's not the charisma of Jesus as a man. It's the Holy Spirit who works in us to draw us to Him. Well, in our Scripture reading tonight, the, the subject that we're going to talk about is there's someone that I want you to meet and John gives, you, uh, gives us a description of Jesus, and he's, it's much unlike what most people would probably think. Now, tonight, we're really not going to talk so much about that description. That, that's going to come in the second part of the message next week. But uh, we're looking at a, a description of Jesus. Uh, the things we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks are the more personal aspect of this. Whereas last week we looked at the salutation of the letter and there we, we saw um, a, a, a picture of the descriptive or description of the work of Jesus rather than his person. But let's read about this tonight. If you'd open to Revelation chapter 1, let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're starting with verse number 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse number 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. as dead. You know, that, that's an interesting thing, right? That verse, I fell at his feet as dead. You run across a lot of people that claim that they've seen visions of Christ and never heard one of them say, I fell at his feet as dead. But that's what John says. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen. And remember th- this is remember that that's the outline for the entire book. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars, the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. Lord, help us as we consider the words of this passage that you'll give us a better understanding of Jesus. And particularly, Lord, as we talk about the church tonight, give us a better understanding of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I I read these opening verses of the book of Revelation, I I am really awestruck by John's presentation of Jesus. There's sort of a... And, and exciting anticipation as you read the opening words. It, it just seems like there's something about to happen. And certainly people that have read this uh, throughout all the ages, they are excited about the things that are written in this book. The book contains some mind-boggling, exciting events. And for some people, that excitement that you have about reading this is weighed down with fear... But for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ is our savior, there's an eager anticipation and we go into this book with our eyes wide open knowing that the things that are there that seem horrible and terrible and fearful are not to be fearful for us, and the things that are written there for that are the good things, the very best things, the things about heaven, and all the things that are going to happen for God's children, those are specially reserved for those who know Christ as Savior. So we go into the book, with, our, as I said, with our eyes wide open, with anticipation, seeing what the book has to open before us. So I'm all struck by that, I, the descriptions that John gives. But I'm also amazed at the humility of the man who wrote down the message. The humility of the one that God gave this message to. I want you to notice first tonight as we talk about this, the position of John. John's position. Can you imagine if there was some preacher today who had been given the revelation of Christ What if there had been one of the big name preachers that we have today and God appeared to him, Jesus Christ came to him and gave him a revelation and said, this is what I want you to write. You know, the very first thing would happen, that big-name preacher, he'd have his name up on billboards, there'd be big advertisements for him, and what you would see was uh, you, they'd have a great big prophecy conference scheduled, $250 a head to get in, to hear the person in some big stadium who, who knows and uh, the, possibly the closest person that's ever lived to Jesus Christ or one who knows him best. And people today, preachers today, that's what they would do if they'd been given the revelation. But we notice that's not the way that John does. John uh, doesn't uh, try to make himself stand out. Look at verse number nine. He says, "I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ." There you see that John identifies himself as just one of the guys. He says, "I'm your brother." I fit in with you. I'm just like you. And so he rubs shoulders with the people that he writes to. And he just says, "I, I too, I'm just a servant of Christ. And so he says, I'm your companion in tribulation. I experience the same things that you experience. So John makes a very short statement there. He doesn't say much about him. There's no explanation of the things that he's going through. And certainly we don't find a complaint from John as he writes this because of what he went through. Where was he when he he received the revelation? Well, we notice first that he was physically on the land. I mean, that's where he was. Physically, he was on an island. Now, that wasn't Tahiti. It wasn't the Bahamas. It wasn't an island like that. This is the island of Patmos, a very small, rocky, volcanic island, about 50 square miles, uh, located in the Aegean Sea, 30 miles or so off the coast of Ephesus. John had been sent there in exile under the persecution of the emperor Domitian. Now, that was not a place where John wanted to be. Obviously, it wasn't. Uh, he was treated like a criminal as, as he was there. Most believe that at this time, he was probably a 90-year-old man or even older, and perhaps he was forced to work in the mines on that island, forced to sleep out on a, on a barren ground. But John doesn't say very much about that. He just says, I'm your brother In persecution. And the reason that John talks like this is because the book is not about him. The book is about him. That's what he's going to write about. So he's not going to talk about himself. Uh, uh, He's just like the Apostle Paul. Whatever God calls me to do, whatever Christ wants me to do, that's what I'm willing to do. So we could stop and we could dwell for quite a while perhaps on John's condition if you read commentary on this, you'll find that there are some people who believe that, that John was possibly boiled in oil and failing to die in that manner, that he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. See, under the Roman rule, under their government, they said that if you were to be executed for a crime, that it, failing to be killed in that execution, you couldn't be executed again. And so what they would do with such people is they would exile them. So that might be the reason that John's on the Isle of Patmos because rather than having killed him, he was just exiled there because that's what they did with people who didn't die in execution. So here could be John sitting there on that island, possibly terribly disfigured as he writes this revelation of Jesus Christ. But the book is not about his pain and suffering. It's not about him. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's John physically on an island, a barren island. But more importantly, I want you to see this, that secondly, he was spiritually in the Lord. He says in verse number 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now remarkably there, we find in verse number 9 that the reason that he was on the Isle of Patmos was for the Word of God. It says, for the testimony of Jesus. What they had done, that they'd put John out there to try to shut him up try to keep him quiet because he'd done too much testifying, he'd done too much preaching. And so they stuck John out there on that island to shut him up. But he was given a revelation from God that couldn't be shut up. And so he wrote these things down, and we read them even tonight because God made sure this word would come to us. They tried to shut him up, but they couldn't. Now let's take a moment to look at this statement. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. There's a lot of argument about what John means about the Lord's day. And that's not the first con- last controversy, I should say, that we're going to see in the book of Revelation. There are lots of things that are argued about here. But what does John mean when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day? Well, there are some people who believe that this means that John was in a trance-like state... He was transported into the future to witness all the events that took place. And so they equate the Lord's Day with the day of the Lord, meaning this was actually in the last times that John was able to see this. I don't think that's what it means. I think when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that he's using that in the very same way that we use it today. When we say the Lord's Day, what do we mean? We mean that it was on a Sunday. There was John on a Sunday doing what John always did on Sunday. He was fellowshipping with the Lord. Now, he was alone there, but he was doing what the disciples had been taught to do, what they practice in New Testament times. Wherever disciples were on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, they came together to worship Jesus Christ. He learned that from the practice of the apostles. That's because, of course, Christ was resurrected on Sunday morning. And so, Christians from the first century until now have worshipped Christ on the Lord's Day. Now, I want to tell you tonight what I believe about this. I don't believe that that's changed. I believe that Sunday is still the Lord's Day, and I believe that's the day that's been set aside particularly for our worship. Now, of course, you can worship God any day of the week. You worship Him every day of the week, but Sunday, I believe, is the day that you must worship because that's the New Testament model. That's what what the disciples did, and that's what they gave us, and I think that's the way that we ought to do it. Now, there are many churches that that uh, have worship services on Saturday night, they have them on Friday night, and that's fine. It's okay to worship, worship God on those nights, but most of them do it because they don't want to take Sunday. They want that to be their day instead of the Lord's Day, and so they don't worship on that day. A few weeks ago, I was driving down Stony Point over here, and there was a sign on a church building that said, Come worship with us on Saturday night, the new Lord's Day. The new Lord's Day. Now, I don't know where they got the authority to change that, but I think that Sunday is the Lord's day. So you worship any time you want, but make sure you're here on the Lord's day because that's particularly his day. So John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I think that means that he was meditating, he was contemplating, he was thinking about God. And at that time, the Holy Spirit came to him, was moving in him, and then Jesus came to him with that revelation. Now, what was John told to do? He's told to write these things down. There's a message that's given. Now, notice the explanation of what he gets to write in verse number 11. He says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. This is a message for churches. Jesus appeared to him as the Alpha and the Omega. Omega. And as we discussed in our, in our last lesson, we, we saw how that is, a, that is an expression that says that everything that was, everything that is, everything there is to be is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the eternally existent one. He's Jehovah God. And John is told to write these things to seven churches. Now, let's talk about that tonight. This is where I want to concentrate the rest of the message tonight on, and that is the disposition of the church. We're going to go through all of these seven churches. We're going to talk about each one of them as we study chapters 2 and 3. But tonight, I I want you to understand that these are real churches. These are real churches existent in John's time, but it's figurative of churches in all ages. I believe that the message that John wrote had a meaning to those churches in that time. There's something for them to learn from this, but there's also something for us to learn from this This is a message given to churches of all time. I also want to say this, that these, I believe, are local churches. And I believe that's the only kind of church there is. That's the only church you'll find in the New Testament. These are seven named churches. And interestingly, in the New Testament, 116 times that the word ecclesia is translated as church, 113 of those times it refers to a local assembly. So it never talks about the church in a universal, invisible sense. This is the local church. And folks, you need to understand that the word Christian and the word church are not synonymous terms. This is a local church. These are local churches that he's writing to. Now, we're going to talk about, as I said, those seven churches individually. But for now, what I want you to understand that this is a letter that went to churches. Now, why does it go to churches? Why doesn't it go to individuals? Well, let's look at this. The church is the place for the message of Christ. In fact, the church is the only place for that message. The church is the only one who has the authority to preach the message of Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus gave the commission to preach and to baptize and to make disciples. And that commission, I believe, was given to a church. Now, there are some people, or to the church, I should say, there are some people who think that that is an individual commission. And there's an element of to the individual. But I think that this is given to the disciples as a church because as individuals, those disciples would soon be dead. And you remember in the commission that Jesus said, I'll be with you unto the end of the world. And there's only one way that that could happen. And that was that the commission would be given to the church institutionally. When you think about a group and you think about the institution, the only one that's going to be around or, and it has been around since the time of Jesus, up to the time that all these things take place in the, in the book of Revelation, until the time that Jesus comes again, the only one that's been able to be around is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been here and it will be here until Jesus comes again. Jesus promised that in Matthew sixteen eighteen. He said, And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is a promise of perpetuity for the church. The church will be here throughout storms of persecution. It was here in that first century through all the persecution that existed then. The church was here throughout all the Middle Ages and the great persecution of those times. The church is here in persecution today in many places of the world. And the church will be here until Jesus comes back, until he comes to rapture it out of this world. So the true church has been here and there's been an unpolluted stream of truth That's come down to us from the time of the apostles to this very hour. You can take some time and read about that in the Trail of Blood. Many people think, well, the Roman Catholic Church, that was the first church. No, the Roman Catholic Church tried to kill the true church. And the Roman Catholics put to death millions of our Baptist forefathers... Protestant churches aren't the true churches. They start 1,500 years too late. The cults aren't true churches. They're built upon personalities and upon perversions of the Word of God or on other writings that people put on par with the Scriptures or even above the Scripture. But friends, there's only one church that has stood the test of time. It has been here since Jesus Christ and the apostles. And these are people that I believe today that we call Baptist. Now, I'm not saying that they were always called Baptists but because they weren't, but the very same things that we teach in Berean Baptist Church, the very same truths that we hold on to, these are the very same things that Jesus and the apostles taught. I don't believe that the church has ever fully apostatized. I believe there's always been an unpolluted stream of doctrinal truth right down uh, from the time of the apostles until this time. And why is it true? It's because Christ promised that perpetuity. And also because Jesus said the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. So if the church ever apostatized completely, then we'd never have a pillar and ground for the truth. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.15, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth we're still upholding the same truths that Jesus and the apostles taught. You know, I'm thankful for something that, that Bob told me on the way out the door this morning. Uh, he said, next week, it will be one year since, uh, it's the anniversary since we were baptized in the Berean Baptist Church. And he said something to me, he said, I'm glad that you're still preaching today what you preached a year ago. And I said, Bob, it's not going to change. We're going to preach the same thing because these are the truths that have been delivered to us. So the church is the institution, it's the, it's the organization that upholds the truth under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. And I'll tell you that the church is the only one who has that authority to preach the truth. The church, or, or Christ hasn't given a commission to any other organization. Nobody else has the right to preach the Word of God unless they've been authorized by a New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've told you before, that's why we question missionaries. When a missionary comes to us, we always say, what church is sending you? And if they don't have a church that sends them, then we say, you don't have the authority to preach. And we tell them, if it's the wrong kind of church that sends you, you neither have the authority to preach. You must be a part of a church that can trace its foundations back to the time of Jesus and the apostles and teaching that very same doctrine. So we're not going to support people who don't have a proper authority. So Jesus says, send this message to the churches because that's where the message belongs. Friend, I want to tell you, you can't do without the church. You can't be a freelance Christian. If the church is the pillar and ground of the truth and if Jesus gave his life for the church, if it's the church that he loves, if the church is his bride, then you can't ignore it. You can't maintain proper fellowship with God and think that you can be out of fellowship with God's church That's an impossibility. Paul said, Husbands, in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The church of Jesus Christ is the light of the world. It's the place where the message of the gospel is reposed. I want you to notice these words that he writes in verse number 12. He says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Those candlesticks are symbolic of something. You know, there's a lot of people who worry about Revelation because they say, Oh, there's all these signs and symbols in Revelation. We can't possibly understand them. There's no way we can know what this means. Usually, the book will tell you when there's a symbol, and often it gives you what that symbol means. And it does right here. In the last part of verse number 20, it says, The seven candlesticks that thou sawest are the seven churches. So those seven candlesticks are symbolic of the seven churches who are the recipients of the letter. And also, I think that's symbolic, again, of all true churches. And it's symbolic of this very church that we're in tonight. Now, when I say candlestick, or the Word of God says candlestick, we might better recognize that perhaps as a candelabra. A candelabra, that's a light source. And the reason that he uses a candelabra is because that fits in perfectly with Jesus' teaching about the illumination of the gospel of Christ. It fits in with the Old Testament symbols that we have of light and what the gospel means. In the book of Luke, Simeon made an amazing prediction about the newborn Christ when Jesus was brought in for the dedication of the temple Simeon, who was a Jew, said something that most Jews would never admit and they really didn't want to articulate. Here's what he says, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Jesus truly is the light of the world. And the gospel is the declaration of that light. See, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. It's the place for the preaching of the gospel. It's the place where the light is, just like a candlestick or a candelabra is a place for light. But there's also another implied picture that we have in this, and that is that a light doesn't shine without fuel. There has to be a source for that light to shine. In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and the temple, there was a golden lampstand. And most of you know that the Jewish menorah that they have today is a depiction of that golden lampstand in both the tabernacle and the temple. It was the priest's job to go into the tabernacle and he would pour oil into the little bowls on the candelabra and that was the fuel for that light in the, in the temple and the tabernacle. Well, that oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit that causes the light of the gospel to shine into our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that opens up the heart to this light of the gospel. Here's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as you know, said, The Holy Spirit is the one who convinces The Holy Spirit reproves. The Holy Spirit convicts the heart of righteousness. So the light, that light, is to shine through the church of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit does His work through the Lord's churches because that's the place for the message. Now let me show you something else about God's church. The church is the place for the messenger. There's a particular messenger that God's placed in the church. Now if you look at verse number 16, John writes, "...and he had in his hand..." Seven stars. What are those seven stars? Well, again, we go to verse number 20, and he tells us, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So he says, those seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Angels is a word that means messenger. There's some people who read this and they think, well, what he's talking about here are are the heavenly angels. He's talking about those special created beings from God. He's talking about uh, angels like Gabriel, angels like Michael, the starry host of heaven. That's what he's talking about here. But I think we really need to understand that the word angel simply means a messenger in this place. And it means the pastors of these churches. I think that's what best fits the context. It's what best makes sense. And that's because angels aren't the ones to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. You needn't expect that an angel is going to come and speak to you about the gospel. That's the job of the ministers of Christ. And particularly, it's the job of the pastor of a church. So the the pastor of the church is the logical one to receive this information and then to pass that information over to the congregation. Now, I want you to note it. Uh, here particularly the position of the pastors. In verse 16 it says, And he had in his right hand seven stars. These are in the right hand. That means that the pastor has a special place of responsibility of guarding the welfare of God's people. Pastors are shepherds of the flock. And like a shepherd watches over his sheep, a pastor is the one who guards the flock that Christ has put under him. Paul gave these instructions to the elders at Ephesus in the book of Acts. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw disciples away after them. It's the pastor's job to warn about false doctrine. It's my job to teach you, it's to edify you, to build you up in the Scriptures, to increase your spiritual acumen. But I think one of the most important things that I do is to warn you about false teaching that's out there that I might protect you. Some people wonder, well, pastor, I don't know about you, naming names all the time. And they get very uncomfortable because I named some names. Well, I tell you, if there's a grievous wolf out there, I want you to know who he is. I want you to stay away from him. You know, the, the wolf often appears in sheep's clothing. Wolves can appear very innocuous at times. But everybody here knows the story of Little Red Riding Hood, don't we? So I want to know, want you to know who the wolf is. Niceties don't always cut it. So if you hear me talking about Mormons, and hear me talking about Jehovah Witnesses, and, and my favorite, Joel Osteen, and if you hear me talking about all these people, well, they got to name some names sometimes because you ought got to know who the wolf is. You know, the Apostle Paul had no trouble at all naming problem makers. Uh, I mean, just, just read throughout the Scriptures and find the numbers of times that Paul talks about people that are causing problems for him. And Jesus, what did he say? You know, he wasn't afraid to call them vipers and venomous snakes. He said they're like tombs that are filled with dead men's bones. Jesus didn't have any problem with that. You know, there's, there's a wolf out there and there's snakes out there and I don't want you to get bit. So that's the pastor's job for you. I have to protect you, teach, protect you, and to warn you. But the Bible also teaches that you have responsibilities towards me. Paying me, that's nice. I mean, that's a very biblical thing to do. But when you pay the pastor, your, your, your support of the pastor does not mean that you have control of him. Respect and submission to God's man is also a principle of Scripture. Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give account, that they may may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. You know, I think the first part of that verse is easy enough. I mean, you understand the parts about obey them that have the rule over you. But the last part of this is very important too. Don't make it hard for the pastor to pastor you. The harder that you make it on me, the harder that it will be for you. Paul says it is unprofitable for you to make the ministry difficult. So some of you folks, you know, this crowd, I, it's, it's like you're preaching the wrong people all the time. But I don't have to worry about this too much. But if there's somebody here that you go out on Sunday and your favorite thing to do is have the preacher for lunch on Sunday, now I don't mean invite me out like the Petros did today. That's a great thing to do. Do that as much as you can. But I'm talking about people who have the pastor for lunch and he's not there. And they're always chewing on the pastor for everything. Don't chew on the pastor. Pray for the pastor. Because one of the things that the Lord knows, he knows what you say either way. He knows what you're saying when you're chewing. And he knows what you say when you praise the pastor. Or when you're giving the pastor his credit, his due, and having respect for him. So Paul teaches us that it's very unhealthy for you if you make the ministry difficult. When you're chewing on the pastor, you may bite into something that you don't want to taste. So the church is the place for God's messenger. And what I do, I come here as a servant of Christ, just as you are. I hang my light with you, and together we labor for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, that brings me to the last thought for part one of the message, and that is the church is the place for the members. The church is a place for you. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, the church is the place for you. And I don't mean that the church is one of your options. That's not how the Bible presents the church. The church is not an option for you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be a part of a Bible-believing New Testament church. And if you're not a part of one, you're in violation of God's command. God doesn't want us to wander aimlessly around and and not to have our light in a certain place. God wants us to put our lights in His church, and He wants us to be here to work for Jesus. The message of the New Testament is the church. God's plan and program is the church. The message is given to the church. The messenger is in the church. And God's people are to be a part of that church. If the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth, you ought to be a part of the church. If the church is where the ordinances of Christ are given, and I'm talking there about baptism and the Lord's Supper, then you ought to be a part of the church. You ought to come into the church to that ordinance of baptism. You ought to be a baptized believer, and then also you ought to be a member of the church so you can partake in the Lord's Supper. That's one of the things we teach around here. Baptism is prerequisite for the Lord's Supper, and you need to be a member of the church because that is a church ordinance. And only the people that are members of the church can take the Lord's Supper. You ought to be a member of the church because of evangelism. I mean, if this is the place that God has given the commission, then the only way that that commission can rightly be carried out and scripturally be carried out is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why you need to be a member. You need to be a member of the church because of fellowship. You're commanded to be in fellowship with God's people. And if you want the strength and the fellowship of God's people... You'll only find it in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church membership shows your commitment to Christ. You show me a Christian who's not a member of a church and try to prove his commitment by that, and I'll say, you've got a hard job to do. Our church membership proves our commitment. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So there's nobody can say, I don't need the church. I mentioned to you some time ago, and... Thank the Lord, you know, this, this young man did once come to our church. I met a young man sitting uh, at the car wash one day, and we were talking, and I was talking to him about church and about being saved. And uh, uh, he actually had a Bible with him, and that's, I spotted him when I sat down, first of all. So I sat down beside him, I said, I wasn't like Philip or anything, what are you reading there? Do you understand what you're reading? But uh, uh, he was actually reading in the book of Ezekiel, if I remember. But uh, we got to talking about it. I said, are you a member of a church somewhere? And he said, oh, I don't believe in organized religion. I, I don't believe in the, I, you know, I, I don't want to be a part of a church. And I said, well, how can you get around the church? I mean, here you have scripture that says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. It says he died for the church. It says all these things about the church and the Bible. I mean, this is the plan and program. Christ started a church. The disciples were part of a church. Paul's writing to churches. How are you going to say I don't like organized religion? What's more organized than that? Well, he did come to church, thank the Lord for that one time at least. But you see, you can't do without the church. Christ has commanded you to be here. You can't please God without it. Now, folks, what I'm telling you right now, what I'm telling you right now is one of the main reasons that people get all excited about the book of Revelation, but then they peter out before the pastor ever gets through with the study. And that's because they get all excited about signs and symbols in Revelation. We want to hear about all these things that are going to happen and explain to us what all the signs and symbols mean. And you come to find out in the very first chapter that the signs and the symbols have something to do with you and your personal commitment to Jesus Christ. It happens right there in the very first chapter. The very first signs and symbols are about you and your relationship to the Lord. That's not too exciting for a lot of people. And so they fall out of the study. Folks, what I'm telling you tonight, there is someone that I want you to meet. We'll get to his description next week. But there's somebody I want you to meet. And the very best place that you can meet him is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's among the fellowship of God's people. Here's the place where you'll get to know Jesus better. You'll get to know him better. You'll get close to him right here as you get close the people who are also his followers that are in the church. You know, the Apostle Paul teaches that, is that when you get close to God's people, when we have unity in the Spirit, when we're all together as God's people in God's house, in God's church, then we're going to be like Christ as well. So as we get close to Christ, we'll get close to one another. And as we get close to one another, I think we'll also get close to Christ. Now that's the last statement for your listening sheet tonight. The church is the best place to meet and to know Jesus. So if you're not a member of a Bible-believing church, I blink that Breham Baptist Church is a church for you. Most of you, if not all of you here tonight, you are members of the church. But if you are, then go out and shed a little gospel light on somebody else. Tell them about your church. Tell them that the church is a place where they can worship and they can be in fellowship with the Lord. If you're not a member of Breham Baptist Church, I want to tell you that the door is open tonight. The invitation is open for you where you can come here and put your light to shine for Jesus Christ. There's somebody that I want you to meet, folks, and I just wonder, have you met him yet? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have to look into your word. Lord, help us to understand better what you, this church that you've given us and what you want us to do as members of your church, how we can be close to you through the church. Lord, help us to see the real importance of that. Lord, I pray for members of Breham Baptist Church that have been unfaithful. Lord, we know this is the place where we ought to be when the church meets and we ought to work in your church. Just speak to the membership of our church, Lord, and bring us together. Then, Lord, I pray for anyone here tonight who might not know you as Savior. May they recognize Jesus Christ through this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.